It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Every single person around this administration, when asked a direct question about contacts with Russians, has lied about it. I, I don't remember much about that meeting. It was a very unimportant meeting. Have we ever seen anything like yes. this? I haven't. Yes, we have. That was it's called Watergate back in 1972 and 73. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who just endorsed a website that accuses Lady Gaga of Satanism. That's our President Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So we don't usually put anything in our Trumpcast feed other than Trumpcast. But I made an exception this week for a new Slate show that I hope you'll love and that I think you'll find relevant to everything we've been talking about here. It's called Slow Burn, and it's about Watergate. Watergate as it was lived and experienced at the time. Slow Burn's a great piece of political storytelling, and I think you're going to enjoy it. But it's also an antidote to the idea that we're living through a completely unprecedented political time. Because while Richard Nixon was a lot smarter and more competent than Donald Trump, the Watergate era had a lot of similarities to our own. It featured the same cast of improbable characters, the same kinds of abuses of power, the routine corruption, and a fight for the truth. It felt to many people at the time, that the country had simply gone insane. I'll be back to talk to the creator of Slow Burn, Slate's Leon Nafok, right after we do the tweets. A meeting with Chuck and Nancy today about keeping government open and working. Problem is, they want illegal immigrants flooded into our country unchecked. Are we on crime and want to substantially raise taxes. I don't see a deal. Looks like another great day for the stock market. Consumer confidence is at record high. I guess somebody likes me. My policies. Wow. Matt Lauer was just fired from NBC for inappropriate sexual behavior in the workplace. But when will the top executives at NBC and Comcast be fired for putting out so much fake news? Check out Andy Lack's past. So now that Matt Lauer is gone, when with a fake news practitioners at NBC be terminating the contract of Phil Griffith? And will they terminate low ratings Joe Scarborough based on the unsolved mystery that took place in Florida years ago? Investigate.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Joining me in the studio today is the Slate writer Leon Nafok. Welcome, Leon. Hi, Jacob. Thanks for having me. You are here because of your fantastic new podcast, Slow Burn, which is also a great title for a show about Watergate. Who came up with that? Ava Lubell, our great counsel. She was in the chat rooms when I would pop in every every day or two and say, how about this one? How about this one? And everyone would say, no, no, that sounds terrible. And then Ava finally uh, came through with Slow Burn. She's also played Melania Trump on our Trumpcast sketches. No kidding, yeah. really? I didn't realize that was her. <laughs> she said she's a lawyer. Amazing. <laughs> um, so I love the show. It went out. We put out the first episode in the Trumpcast feed. So, so some, many of our listeners may have heard already your first episode about Martha Mitchell. God, what a great topic. I mean, Martha Mitchell is a character you could write an opera about. Two people have written plays about her. Really? As a matter of fact, yes. Uh, I found that out while researching her. She's someone I had never heard of before starting to do this research. But then, you know, the more I learned about who she was, like, at the height of Watergate, but then also afterwards, she had this amazing afterlife. I mean, unfortunately, she, she, she died very young. But there were, yeah, like I said, plays, there are songs about her. Uh, she really has a, she left her fingerprints on our culture. <laughs> now, part of what I want to talk about is the the generation gap between us. I'm just old enough to have grown up in a Watergate-soaked environment. I was a, I was a nerdy kid into politics, and I watched the Watergate hearings, and I followed Watergate even though I was only nine, ten years old while it was going on. So, But Martha Mitchell is just a common reference point for me. But it never occurs to me that any people younger than I am, I mean, anyone under 50 only knows about Martha Mitchell, if they know about her at all, from reading about it in a history class or maybe seeing one of these plays or picking up cultural references. Yeah. But you didn't know who Martha Mitchell was. <laughs> I didn't. I really didn't. Um, and the reason I started the show uh, with her is that l- learning about her kind of put me, felt like it put me in, in the minds of people who who, who followed her story in, you know, as it was unfolding. And it made me think about all the different people who are sort of bit players in, in the current saga, who are larger than life as far as we're concerned and who, you know, who we spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about uh, as the news trickles out, but who will be totally forgotten in, you know, 45 years, which is how long it's been since Watergate. But just to be clear, if a year ago we had been at a party and there was a, a heavy set older woman drunk <laughs> talking very loudly so that we could hear her across the room, and I said to you, what's with Martha Mitchell over there? You would not have gotten that <laughs> reference? Absolutely not. <laughs> I, I think anyone my age and older would immediately get that reference because that's... she was a touchstone in the culture, and that's what she stood for. And part of what I loved about your episode is to go back to this history and take this bit character, but an important bit character, and look at her as a person and human being and realize that this way in which she was characterized was not just brutal and sexist, but also served a very distinct political purpose to discredit her. Yeah. Um, I think part of what attracted me to her story is that she was just in the middle of a, of a world historically kind of grave situation. And she was just this one person and she, she sort of dealt with it in, in a 
I was going to say private way, but the truth is she was actually quite public about the way she dealt with it. But, you know, it affected her on a, on a human level, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Right. So basically, Martha Mitchell had a big mouth and had friends in the press and was saying things about Watergate to reporters that the people involved in the cover-up with her husband, John Mitchell, the attorney general and former head of the Nixon campaign re-election effort, wanted they wanted to muzzle her right they did why did she want to talk what did she want to say and why did they think it was so important to to shut her up it's a good question and i think i think historians don't know or perhaps just disagree on how much she really knew uh, about watergate that she wasn't supposed to know what's certain is that she was a big eavesdropper. She was frequently described, you know, listening in on on meetings that that her husband John Mitchell would have uh, in their apartment with other Nixon uh, officials or campaign officials. She would go through his mail. She would secretly sit on the phone while he was on the phone. You know, while he was talking to someone, now realizing she was on the on, on the other line. So she was close to a lot of action. And so I think, regardless of what she actually knew, it was in a way quite. <laughs> reasonable for the for the, for these for these henchmen around her to treat her as if she 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 was a danger because the combination of her eavesdropping and the common and and her very widely known penchant for gossip made her sort of a a, a big risk you know what what, what was she going to say to whom and the most specific thing i i i i think that she, that they were worried about was that she was personally uh, acquainted with one of the burglars you know she, she knew James McCord. He was, you know, depending on how you define it, he was one of the one of the most important members of this of the squad. The ring, the ringleader. I mean, the one who spoke fluent English. Yes, there you go. And, yeah, and interacted and, with the Cubans. Yeah, yeah, and he's the one who ended up sort of blowing the whole thing open by by coming clean to to Judge Sirica yep. that you know there were there were people who who were higher up that were. That who, whose names had not been uttered during the Watergate trial. Uh, anyway, she she knew James, Martha Mitchell knew James McCord because he had worked as her personal security guard for a little while. He had driven her daughter to, to school, and so in the days immediately following the burglary, when John Mitchell and, and and the rest of Nixon's aides were sort of huddling to try to contain this thing and to try to assess the the, the potential damage, they just wanted to hold her off as long as possible so that she you know wouldn't see in the paper that her trusted driver James McCord was. A, engaged in this in this activity meanwhile john mitchell you know is telling the press that that, that james mccord is hardly involved in creating in, in the campaign to reelect the president uh and martha of course knew that that wasn't true so to keep martha mitchell in the dark they quite literally kidnapped her drugged her and kept her locked in a hotel room for how long a couple days um she was i believe she made she, she made she made a phone call the, the sort of the most dramatic moment in the story is when she makes this phone call after days in seclusion to a reporter named helen thomas from united press international very well known in her own right um martha calls her and says you know i'm tired of these dirty political tricks i'm i'm i'm, I'm going to leave john if he doesn't quit this dirty game and John was the, was the one keeping her locked up, right? She didn't know that though. I mean, she she was she was being watched by by sort of a minder, an ex FBI guy who was instructed to keep her away from the telephone. Yeah, from yeah. the telephone, but also from 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 newspapers, TV. Um, she found her way to, to a newspaper pretty pretty early on, which is how she, which is why she became sort of an acute threat because she did see the mug, the mugshot of James McCord in the paper. And so anyway, she's on the phone with, with, with Helen Thomas and she, Helen Thomas brings up Watergate and Martha starts replying, at which point the phone just goes dead. And it turns out that this ex-FBI agent that, her, uh, that Martha's husband had 
had put in charge of her had simply torn it out of the wall because he didn't want her to talk to the press. Um, it's like a scene in one of these 70s conspiracy villers. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. insane. And that, again, this is why I, I, I was so drawn to it as a first episode is because like, if I haven't heard this story, think about how many slightly less dramatic ones there are under, the, you know, hiding under under rocks that, that we could, we could uh, you know, refresh our, our, our listeners with. So talk a little bit about the rest of the series. Are you going to focus, first of all, is, all, is it all going to be about characters? And are you going to kind of focus on these secondary players rather than the primary players? Not necessarily. Um, I think we are probably inclined, when I say we, I say, uh, I mean, my, my producer and I, Andrew Parsons, we are sort of biased towards the peripheral characters just because we want to bring stuff that people are, uh, you know, find to be unfamiliar. The conceit of the series is to try to capture what it was what it was like to live through it. So the obvious question is like, well, what was it like for whom? What, what was it like for you, Jacob? That could be quite quite different than, than what it was like for... John Dean. Yes, yes exactly. It. So the fun part has been sort of fi- like finding for each phase of the saga, and it's, it turns out to be quite easy to divide it into sort of chapters. For each chapter, find like the perfect point of view through which to, to learn of those events. You know, in some cases that has meant talking to someone who is intimately involved, someone who is watching it from up close. You know, we, we spoke to a number of staff members from the Senate Watergate hearings, people who were serving as investigators, you know, the people who were in the room when, when, when Alexander Butterfield revealed that uh, there was a taping system in the, in the White House. You know, the question, what was it like to live through Watergate, applies to the person who was in that room just as much as it does to, you know, eight-year-old Jacob. Well, uh, well one thing you, you get at, Leon, that, that I really loved in the first episode, and I think it was in this conversation you had with Dick Cavett, mm-hmm. and it's something people don't talk about very much, it's how much fun Watergate <laughs> was. And why was I, as an eight- or nine-year-old, into it? It wasn't just because I was precocious and, and nerdy and into politics. It was because it was the fun thing going on <laughs> in, in uh, American culture. And, you know, I think there was a certain um, solemnity about Watergate, obviously, because the, once impeachment got started, there was the issue of removing a president. And it was the, the, the public posture of everyone had to be that this was all very serious, important. But it was a comedy played out on the national stage. And mm-hmm. even to a kid, that was apparent that there was this tremendous rogues gallery of characters, wonderful characters, including people like Martha Mitchell. But, the, but what they had done was ridiculous. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the Watergate burglary opened up this world of dirty tricks that were something like adolescents would do if left to their own devices. Yeah, like I mean, they were pranks. Sh- stealing shoes from people's, you know, from, from the Muskie campaign's staffers when they were staying in a hotel. Pizzas ordered. Impersonating uh, people, exactly. <laughs> it was like what you was like, it was like crank calling. Yeah. It was like crank yankers, but with a slush fund of millions of dollars. Right. And I think the dirty little secret of Watergate is that liberals pretended to be very angry, but they were actually <laughs> tremendously enjoying every moment. It also let liberals and Democrats feel hugely superior, superior. <laughs> in, every, in every way to these benighted fools who were young Republicans. And after the 60s, you know, there was nobody less cool uh-huh. than a young Republican in a pressed shirt and tie. Uh, that's really funny. I suspect that for for Democrats, it was probably very tempting to feel vindicated even very early on. But, you know, one of the things I, I kind of came to appreciate as I researched this is that it's, this took a very long time, two years and two months, you know, I mean, that's 
to live through two years and two months, especially if you get excited in, in, in month one that the president's going down, uh, is, is, is quite a long time to wait. And I didn't quite appreciate that so many different things had to go right uh, for things for, for the story to end the way it did. So many, so many governmental bodies had to function uh, exactly the way they're supposed to in order for this to, to, to all come to pass, you know, between the, the Senate Watergate Committee, but also the House Judiciary Committee that, that, that did the impeachment hearings. There's all these mini institutions that, that had to fire on all cylinders uh, for this to happen. And even so, you know, the, the, the fact that it break and happened in June of 72, and then the election happened in November, five months later, and it was as if no one had ever even heard of Watergate. You know, it was, it was the biggest landslide that anyone had ever seen, and Watergate didn't matter. I didn't quite realize that, that it took that long for, for the country to sort of understand that this was, this was a real serious scandal that, that had potentially huge consequences. It was a slower time. <laughs> what, when you went through all of this material, I'm, I'm really curious, Land, what holds up? Because, you know, I, I read a lot of those Watergate memoirs mm-hmm. and there are the Nixon Frost interviews mm-hmm. and there's all sorts of video you can watch. And, you know, I remember reading all the Doonesbury cartoons through Watergate, mm-hmm. which was one of the ways I understood it. But as you, as you try to answer this question of yours, what did it feel like mm-hmm. to live through Watergate? What's been, what's been the most enlightening? So there's two books that I that I really loved reading. One is primarily focused on the hearings, and it's by Mary McCarthy. Uh, I think it's a collection of her yep. dispatches from the New York Review. I think she I was writing say. for the for writing them for the New York Review. Yeah, but books at the time. That's yeah. the Mask of State. I yes, think the is Mask the name of, of the collection. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and that's really she. That's about the character study. I mean, she really covered Watergate, and I didn't read her at the time, but mm-hmm. I've read some of that since. But as a human drama, and she'd been a theater critic, uh-huh. and she really wrote about it at theater. Totally, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. So that book is fantastic. Uh, and finally, uh, a sort of dark horse uh, favorite of mine has been uh, Jimmy Breslin's book called How the Good Guys Finally Won, yep. uh, which is just a total joy to read. Uh, Where and, he wrote about it as like about the New York Mafia family. Precisely. Right? He wrote, well, he wrote it like a New York writer. story. Yeah, yeah, he wrote yeah. it like a New York story. Yeah. Uh, and there's a funny line in the book because he's focusing on these, uh, you know, on these individuals who are from New York and sort of treating them like they're the most significant players in this drama. You know, they're the pivotal pivotal actors who who caused the impeachment, you know, who drove the impeachment hearings and led to the resignation. But then he has a line in the book that's like, us journalists, we sort of do that with whoever we get access to. <laughs> Whatever, whoever we get access to, right. that's the person we say is the most important. Because <laughs> uh, it's better for the story. So I, I have to take, take it with a grain of salt that, yeah. that the, the three people he, he focused on were, in fact, the most important ones. So what does this all tell you about the Trump scandals and what maybe we're going through now or going through again? You know, it, it's funny. I mean, our whole... You know, I think John Dean used the phrase worse than Watergate. He may have used it even before Trump. But it's just, it's, again, the benchmark. Is this not as bad as Watergate? Is it at a Watergate level? Is it worse than Watergate? And what do you think? I mean, I know you're studying Watergate, but you're studying (laughs) how the reality of Watergate. Do the things that we're talking about now in terms of Trump's alleged obstruction of justice, I would say confessed obstruction of mm-hmm. justice, his the, the possible collusion, which we're exploring some of the other issues around financial corruption and conflict of interest. Is it Watergate comparable? So I think the, the things we know that Trump and his affiliates did are nowhere near what, what people knew about Nixon and his men. Like, there was so much more information, especially after the hearings. Once we had the tapes. Even before the tapes. I mean, with all that parade of witnesses during the Senate, Senate Watergate hearings, 
kind of generated so much new information about how this administration worked, how this campaign worked. The Nixon people were just up to so much more misbehavior. I mean, from from the tricks you were, you know, the, the pranks you were describing to much more serious crimes like breaking into the the, the office of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist, the, 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 the man who leaked the Pentagon Papers, they wanted to take him down, so they ordered uh, a break-in into his psychiatrist's office so they could steal his medical records. I mean, that was a that was a fact that people knew that that happened. Whereas now, you know, what's what's on that level that we that we know for sure happened? Some meetings, you know, some emails, some D- Twitter DMs. It's reading about all the crazy revelations that people learned and accepted and got used to during Watergate makes me realize that the stuff we found out about Trump so far is small potatoes. Not because like doesn't add up to a bigger scandal, but just we don't we don't know as much about what 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 went on. Well, that's very interesting, Leon. You're right. Nixon was kind of comprehensively corrupt, and you know was using so many different organs of government to attack his political enemies and so on. But Nixon in 1972 was running for his second term. He'd four, had four years to to comprehensively corrupt the mm-hmm. government, and I wouldn't you know I I honestly think that part of the difference there is t- Trump just hasn't had the time to do that. Also, he's Ben Wittes' great line about Trump malevolence uh, tempered by incompetence. He's not not as effective. Nixon was very effectively corrupt. But the other point that's maybe a crucial distinction is with Watergate, and the reason Watergate is a great Democratic lesson, is that Congress did its job. Mm -hmm. The legislative branch, even if a little reluctantly on the Republican side, Mm -hmm. came around held real hearings, held the president a- accountable, and the president had to resign because he would have been impeached. With Donald Trump, you have one party that wants to do that and another party that's trying to prevent it from happening. Yeah, uh, it's, it's reading about the, the sort of dynamics within the, the Senate committee makes me wonder if, if, if there's just a, a different political reality now that makes, makes any historical you know, comparisons kind of moot. Because, as you say, there was there was some reluctance on the part of Republicans uh, who who worked for the committee to be as aggressive as the Democrats wanted to be. But you know, in the end, there was sort of an understanding that that that, that this thing needed to be bipartisan, that this thing needed to be unanimous. You know, the Republicans agreed to subpoena the tapes when it turned out there were tapes. There was behind the scenes help that was being given to to the White House, and you know, notes being compared uh, by by the Republicans in the committee. Uh, with folks in the White House, but but as you say, ultimately, uh, people were willing to give up their their allegiance. Uh, and if the question about Trump has been like, what will it take for the people around him, for the establishment Republicans, to once and for all disavow him uh, and start working against him, I think that's sort of the question I'm actually in the process of trying to answer as I'm working on episodes five and six of the show. It's like, how did the apologists, the defenders, what was it that triggered their, uh, you know, decision to finally say no more. But that's, that, that's been the part of the show where, the, where, the, where I've been most curious to find parallels, because that is the thing that I think all of us want to know about Trump. It's like, what, will he, what, what does he have to do for the Republicans to not want to protect him anymore? We've got the crooked president surrounded by clowns and buffoons part. That parallel is established. <laughs> the question is, is he held accountable in the way Nixon was held accountable? And we're looking forward to hearing more about that in future episodes of Slow Burn. So, Leon, thank you for joining me on the show. Thanks so much, Jacob. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. John DiDomenico is our voice of Donald Trump. 
And again, if you haven't yet subscribed to Slow Burn, sign up at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.